So we turn now to uh, the section of scripture that we are going to focus on today. Um, we've spent some time already on some of the earlier sections of Exodus and have looked at God's moral law as it was given in the Ten Commandments. Um, today we're going to look more at a reading that focuses on the civil law that was given to the people of Israel. And uh, we, have, we have this section. So let's read Exodus 21, verses 1 through 32. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. She shall have no right to, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, 
He shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. And if a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you have given us your word in its entirety, and we know that your word is truth, and that there are things for us to learn and to follow, even in passages that are difficult to interpret and sometimes seem very obscure. So we say we pray today that your spirit would give Addison what he needs to clearly declare what you have given to him. We pray that may, we may have receptive hearts and uh, may hear this word, that it may be applied to us, and that we may walk in deeper fellowship with each other and with you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. Well, now you know why Pastor Andrew is preaching at Hudsonville Reformed. I only kid. We had that scheduled way before we knew what today's text was going to be. And of course, I, I'm making light of, of our text, not because it's a light text, but because it's heavy, because there's a lot for us to deal with in this text. We need to deal with ox laws and the beginning of dentistry practices, the losing teeth, and no, but there's so much in here for us to deal with as we continue in our sermon series God in the midst. Of course, this is given to us. This is in our Bible. This is something that God had intended for his people and, of course, has for us as well. It's only right that we deal with these difficult subjects, these difficult topics, that we don't just gloss over them. We don't move past them. We don't skip these portions of Scripture because they're hard for us to understand. They are hard for us to understand. And we will deal with that today. We'll deal with why it's hard for us and what then do we do with it. And we're going through Exodus, uh, looking at uh, God in the midst as he is walking with his people. He has, of course, led them out of Egypt and is bringing them to the promised land. But we find ourselves in the middle. We find ourselves at Sinai where God is giving his commandments, his statues, his laws, his ways for his people to live in the world. And of course, this section of scripture, while the, the time that they're at Sinai is not as long as the amount of ink that is spilled over it from Exodus to the beginning parts of Numbers, there's a lot that is dealt with. And today is just a snippet of some of the case law that we get in the book of the covenant. 
if you remember from last week, Pastor Andrew opened up this short little, kind of, it's not really a mini-series, but this short look at the book of the covenant that we find in this portion of Exodus. And it's designed to help God's people live free in this world. Because remember, they're coming out of Egypt as slaves. They, they come out into this world with this way of living that is not what God intended for them. And so he has to provide a way for them to live. He has to provide rules and laws, stipulations. He has to guard against their heart's desire to fashion their own way of living. And of course, that's where you and I enter into this text. We enter into it in a few different ways, but primarily we enter into it as broken icons, broken image bearers. That word icon is a Greek word that's used in the New Testament. It, it means image or a representation of, or as a reflection of something. We are icons of God, made in his image, a truth that we get early in Genesis 1 and 2. That we're broken, just like the Israelites were broken. We also enter into this text a bit abruptly. We read it, and it's a bit foreign to us. We don't practice these laws. These are not laws you will find on any books in our country or many other countries. And so it hits us like a ton of bricks. We have to ask questions to understand. And of course, we enter this text because we're needy. We are needy people. We need direction, we need correction, and we need government. Because again, left to our own devices, to our own heart choices, we will hurt ourselves and other people. Just think about our cultural narrative, one that I think certainly has uh, sunk in and, and seeped its way into even the way that you and I think. We are watch out for number one, self-help, not communal help, not uh, group help, but self-help has been one of the, the leading areas of study, books, blogs, all the sorts of things for the last, I don't know, five, ten years, longer. We are people that look to ourselves first because God enters into the midst, and he says, no, I want you to think about me, to live as my image bearers, and in the process of doing that, to lift one another up, that they might be blessed, that they might flourish, that they might see the value and the dignity that I have placed on them, and that I want you to live for. See, the law can only do so much for us, as Bob rightly said and prayed, there has to be heart work that goes on. And so, of course, we come to the Bible and we ask the Spirit to work on our hearts when we read texts like this. So in the book of the covenant, we see that through the law, God frees his people to live meaningful lives in community and to reflect his image. And so over the next two weeks, Pastor Andrew and I are going to take this part of the book of the covenant, these laws, these taste laws that exist, and we're going to ask some questions about them that we might understand 
what God has for us today. Why would he include these things about slaves and servants, about daughters being sold into slavery, about uh, striking your father and your mother, uh, about the stealing of men and, and the curses that come when you curse your father and your mother, all these different things. What, what are the things that we learn? Because, of course, this is foreign to us. I love the way that Christopher Wright puts this. And it's such an important quote that I've included it in the bulletin for you so that you might have this. Not only today, you might have to try and write it down. You can have this. You can take it. So just read along with me. Think about this. These laws embody a vision of the kind of society God wanted Israel to be in their own historical and cultural context. So if we can discern the motivation, purpose, and values that drove such guidelines for living back then, we can then begin to articulate broad principles in relevant application in other contexts such as our own. He goes on to list some questions that we can ask of the text to gain a better understanding of what is there. I'll just read a couple of them for you, provided them in the bulletin as well. What was the objective of the law? What kind of people would have been restrained by this law? What kind of people would have A, benefited from, or B, been protected by the law? What motivations were there for obeying this law, either explicit in the text or implied in the story of salvation? What values, norms, or principles are embodied in the law? So we're going to split the weeks in half, and we're going to look at some values that we think we have seen. These are not exhaustive by any means, but these are the values that our group has looked at and said, yeah, we think that we see these in the text. And those three for today are that all life has value. Life is more important, worthy than property, and all lives have equality before the law. Those are the three values. All life has value. Life is more important, valuable, has more dignity than property, and all lives have equality in and before the law. So I hope over this next 20-ish minutes or so, we can begin to tease out some of that. But why is it difficult? It being our understanding, our reading of the, the interpretation of this text. Why is it so difficult? I, I thought we were all told that we can read the Bible on our own and, and discern for ourselves what it means, uh, what the text means and what we should do with it. I mean, as it's written, these case laws are totally foreign to us. They are, like I said earlier, not things we encounter on a daily basis or weekly, monthly, or annually. These are not things that you and I encounter in our lives. They're peculiar. They're cringeworthy at times when we read them. Yet we cannot just move past them. We can't just say, yeah, they're hard to read, so I'm going to skip to chapter 22, which is also difficult to read. Well, maybe I'll start in 23. Well, that's hard, too. I guess I'll just move to 24. No, this, it's, we have to understand it or else we're going to skip large chunks of our Bible. One of my seminary professors loves the book of Leviticus. He's a, he's a scholar in it. He has a heart for it. And he loves it because it says every line in that book is revealing to us the heart of God. 
every line reveals to you and I what God values, who he values, how much he values it. And there's so much for us to learn. That is true for us today here in Exodus because, of course, this part of Exodus and Leviticus are connected. So how can we understand them? Well, it takes hard work. It takes hard but good work to understand what is going on. So we have to seek to understand three things. The cultural moment, giving you lots of lists. I'm sorry about that. Three things, the cultural moment, like what's going on in this time, and how can we understand what is being said. The second thing is God's story of salvation up until this point, and then what comes after. So what is God doing in his story? Where do the people find themselves, not only culturally, but as a part of the story? What does he say later about some of these issues as well? And the third and last one is God's values that undergird these laws. So let's look at the instance. We'll just use this as a reference of, the, of verses 7 through 11. I don't know about you, but when we read that, it probably struck you as confusing, cringeworthy, hard to understand when a man sells his daughter as a slave. That line alone needs to be unpacked. She shall not go out as the male slaves do if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself. There's just so much in this text that's confusing to you and I in our modern context. So let's just go through those points. The cultural moment, what's going on? Well, there's probably reasons for the way that this case law, why it would have been presented in this way. So I'll just give you a couple. It doesn't mean that these are exactly what happened, but this is probably what was in mind in the cultural moment. A family may not have had many options, whether it be wealth, land, uh, connections at this time. You know, they just come out of slavery in Egypt, and they're trying to find a, their own place. They're not in the promised land. They're not in the place that God had designed for them yet. And so the allocation of these things was coming from having literally nothing and being slaves to having just a little bit more but being free. And so some families found themselves in a tough spot. So if their harvest, if their crop did not produce enough seed for them for the next year because they just needed it to feed their family, then that husband, that man, or that family was going to have to buy or get seed from somewhere else so that they could plant and have food for the next year. So he's going into debt. When you go into debt, there's not a lot of ways to get out of it in the ancient Near East. You couldn't just go down the street to your local bank or your friend and say, hey, can you loan me this money? It just, that, that didn't exist. There was no centralized way of exchanging money in this, in the way that you and I think about it. You couldn't just put it on a credit card. You couldn't just write an IOU. You had to do something difficult to be able to provide for your family. And so thus, people would sell, not for profit, but for debt purposes, their daughters or their sons into servitude. And we'll talk about the, na- the, the label slave in just a minute. But for this instance, this daughter, if this were to happen, she is being put in a place grafted into a family where her prospects are much higher. 
it's likely that the family that she is going to go to has more wealth, has more land, perhaps has a son that's going to be the heir of this stuff, this, this, uh, the, the land, the wealth, and all the things that come with it. And so she is going to be able to marry into this and have full rights. Full rights. She goes from nothing to having something. And there are other instances where this may have been true. It didn't have to just be land and all those things. But this is why someone might be motivated to consider this as an option. Now, of course, that's the ideal situation. The case law exists to protect the daughter. See, we read it through our modern lens and say, this is absurd. How could something like this have ever happened? How can we stand for this? I can't read this. I haven't asked questions about who God is because of these texts. But this case law exists to protect the daughter. If you read it, you'll notice that it's, it's using language we're familiar with, but in a different way. So if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. What does that mean? Well, it means that she is allowed to go back to her family for free, no cost. The family gets their money back. The, the, the daughter is able to go back to her family where she can be loved and cared for because she was not being loved and cared for here. If she gets engaged, the text goes on, then she has full rights of the family, like we said. She couldn't be overlooked if this man uh, got married to a second wife. She still had marri- the marriage rights, food and a place to live, the, the marriage uh, values that are there. See, she is being protected in this instance. See, God is always looking out for the vulnerable. He cares for the least of these, as is said in Matthew So what do we do with that slave language? It's probably the one that's maybe the hardest for us to get our minds around. And it's the same thing. Our culture reads this in a very different way than it was intended to land. Here is how one author puts it. Translations use the English word slave in passages such as Exodus 21, but it is misleading. The Old Testament does not have a word for slave. Because the idea of slavery is a European one, known in Greece, Rome, Britain, and America, but not in the Middle East. There, people were more like indentured servants in that the law gave them some protection. Their masters could not do whatever they liked with them, and they served for only a limited period. See, our text even answers some of our own modern criticism of that word slave. If you Just go down to verse 16 in the bulletin and read that. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. This is a direct rebuttal to the idea of slavery that you and I have in mind. So, of course, in our text, the culture is different. See, God is always protecting the vulnerable See, they would have known what slavery was when they were in Egypt. And now God has brought them out. He has freed them. He's given them a purpose. He has brought them out of this, uh, this service that they had no choice in. And he said, you will be my people and I will care for you in these ways. 
God places value and worth on all of life. And that's the story of salvation that we see throughout the Bible. We see this even in the way that Paul deals with this same issue in the New Testament. If you are actually in slavery, if you are like our people were in Israel, he says, then get your freedom. Buy it. Notice here that the Hebrew slave in our first chunk wants to stay in his situation. It's a good situation. He's making a wage. His family is provided for. His master treats him well. And there's a law that allows him to stay as a servant long term. So we need to do some business because this is so difficult for us to understand texts like this. There's so much more to be said. Really just kind of scratching the surface, giving you some things to think about, to pray about, to ponder. Why is it so difficult to understand? I mean, the simple answer is that this text was not intended in its words for you and I. Now, the values that are underneath it are, of course, intended for us. But these words were not. So we think about them individualistically. We think about them with our own context and culture in mind. And we're going to misread them. So what can we do to avoid that? I'm going to give you guys just a few things to think about before we move on to the next point. One is that we need to do the hard work of asking questions. That's why we wanted to provide those questions for you in the bulletin. Use those questions to ask and to ponder, what does this text say? What are the things that I learn about this text? What are the, the values that are there? What's the objective? What's the situation trying to teach me? Cut those out and paste them in the front of your Bible so you have a quick reference back to them. Or talk in your C groups. Come together and read a passage like this. More minds will help understand this text better. will bring you out of your own individual interpretation of this and help you think about it in a way that maybe somebody else is thinking about it with. Do this in cross-cultural moments. Sit down with someone who doesn't exist in the same cultural moment as you. Maybe they're ethnically different than you. Maybe they're from a different country. Maybe they live in a, in a different part of the world. Ask these questions together and seek an understanding of what God means and what he wants for us today. Buy commentaries and books. We've got loads of resources that we can give you, and then let's talk about them. Go to websites like the Bible Project and use those references and resources to help you understand. But again, don't do it on your own. Do it in community. Because that's how this case law was meant to be lived out. They did it in community. So now that we have just a few moments left and we've spent all our time in the first, let's look at who does this law concern? Who are the people that are are valued here. I mean, if you go through the whole thing, and we just took a snippet of the book of the covenant in, in chapter 21. You can go on to chapter 22 and 23, and there's some more text there that's all a part of that book of the covenant. Andrew will look at some of that next week. So I'm going to mention some of these people that we didn't talk about directly, but they're there, I promise. So it talks about men and women, of course, but young women, we saw in, in our own text, but also in 22, there's more slaves or servants. We saw in our own text, the unborn we saw in our own text, the sojourners are the people that were coming and finding rest in the land but weren't God's people. We see that in chapter 22. The poor and the needy, chapter 22. The neighbor, chapter 22 again. Rulers, chapter 22 again. And the wealthy, guess which chapter that's in? 22. 
it's not just value that God has, but equality before the law. And this was not true of the surrounding nations. This was not true of the cultural context that Israel found themselves in. See, not all of life was counted equal or as valuable before the law. In most ancient Near Eastern legal collections, says one scholar, the nature and quantity of punishment or compensation varied according to the social status of the victim of the offense. There were major differentiations between wrongs done to a slave, a commoner, an upper-class person, or a royal or court person. But in the Old Testament law, there are no such distinctions. All are to be treated the same before the law. Did you guys catch that as we read through our case laws? There's no distinction between class, between male or female. Before God's law, all are equal. Of course, this is backed up and built into the New Testament. There's some verses of Paul talking about this very idea in Romans 3. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then later in Romans, Romans 10, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him, call on him. And then again, Paul writing to the Galatians. This is one that we've all heard many times, but in this context, just hear it differently. There is no Jew, no Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. See, these are allusions or callbacks, hyperlinks, to use some modern language, back to the book of the covenant. If you were to be able to click on that in Galatians, it would take you back to these texts to show you that Paul's not just making this up. The Holy Spirit is working through him and his knowledge of the Old Testament to write these words for you and I, that all are equal before the law. Of course, this challenges us today. We're broken, we're sinful, but our care for others, for other broken icons, image bearers of Christ, it should increase. We're called to walk in obedience of this value and to seek the flourishing of those around us. See, sometimes consciously we make decisions that we wish we wouldn't have, that harm or hurt other people because of the way they look things that they believe perhaps the way that they engaged with you you didn't like the way they talked to you you don't like the status that they hold maybe they're your boss maybe there's someone in a lower cultural status than you see we're called to not see those things as barriers between our engagement to one another it doesn't mean we wipe them away and say we can't see them we have to address them and say they don't hold us back from engaging in what Christ has done. He has leveled the playing field. All are equal in the law, in value, in dignity before Christ Jesus. Means when we go out of here, we love our neighbors in the way that we want to be loved. We love our neighbors in the way that Christ has loved them. Just think about how and who he engages with in the gospel. The needy, the different, the outcast. 
He goes straight to them. This should challenge the way that you and I think about how and who we engage with in our own culture. Again, we ask questions. I could stand up here and list a bunch of things that we should do that would be unfair. Some of you probably are doing those things. Some of us aren't. You know the way in which the Spirit is pricking your heart right now to consider how you engage with people who are different than you. Do we have the same value that we see in this text? That God values all before the law. Inside the covenant, inside God's chosen people, inside our church, yes, of course we do that. But also outside. Exodus 22, verse 21, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God says you do not Treat the people who are outside of your community any different than you treat the people inside your community. Don't oppress them. Because you know what that was like, he says. You were once in bondage in Egypt, and now you're free. Don't treat people in bondage. So what do we learn? What do we learn about this text? We've asked these questions. We've engaged with some of the particulars. We'll have to talk about the oxes and dealing with them at a different time. But what do we learn about this text? Does this text govern how we live? Does it impact our view of people and property and culture? I want to read one more section of Exodus for you that wasn't in our text. It's Exodus 22, verses 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is the only covering, and it is cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep? In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. Did you catch that? So you weren't too confused by the bits just before it. But if he cries to me, I will hear, for I, Yahweh, I, your God, am compassionate. See, God is compassionate. God and his compassion created the heavens and the earth. God in his compassions filled it with the water, separated it from the dry land, and then filled that with the birds and the animals. God in his compassion created Adam and Eve as image bearers. God in his compassion caused them to fall and to sin and to rely on him. God in his compassion called Abraham and promised him a people, a land, and a blessing. God in his compassion brought Israel under subjection to Egypt as slaves. God in compassion led Israel out of Egypt towards the promised land and called them free. 
God in his compassion gave his people the ten words, the ten commandments to know how to live. God in his compassion gave him the book of the covenant to fashion a society, a culture that represented him to the world. God in his compassion led them to the land that he had promised their forefathers. God in his compassion kept them out of the promised land to deal with their sin and their iniquity. God in his compassion brought them into the land. God in his compassion left other nations in the land to prune Israel and their misbeliefs about who he was. God in his compassion raised up a king for Israel like they wanted. God in his compassion showed them that those kings, those rulers were broken that they might rely on him. God, in his compassion, created a king with the heart of God. God, in his compassion, showed Israel their idolatry through their desire to be ruled. God, in his compassion, provided Israel with poor leaders to reveal their unfaithful hearts. And God, in his compassion, pushed Israel out of the land to be sojourners, to know what it was like to be outside of the promised land, and then God in his compassion welcomed Israel back into the land and gave them the temple that they might worship him and him alone again. And God in his compassion sent his only son to be born of the Virgin Mary. God in his compassion provided Jesus Christ to die on the cross after living a sinless life that our sins might be forgiven. God in his compassion took Jesus, his beloved son, out of the grave to rise into the heavens and sit at his right hand. And God in his compassion has invited you and me to bow our knees to this king. It's God's compassion that rules this law. It's God's compassion who is working in our lives to help us see that, yes, we're broken icons. Yes, we mess up. Yes, we do things wrong. We need governance just like the Israelites did. But it's God in his compassion has given us Christ, that we have someone who loves us far more than we could ever hope, further than our deepest sin. The book of the covenant shows us God's compassion. So the question then that confronts us as we seek to live this out today in our own part of the story, in what comparable ways Are we willing in our social economic relationships to work out the ethical principles undergirding laws like the ones we've seen in the manner and spirit of the way that Jesus did? Do the grace and compassion of God govern the way that you and I engage with one another? Or is it something else? See, we are broken icons that we're being restored We're going to be redeemed fully, and we are invited to follow Jesus, the one who has made a way for you and I. So we live as free people, reflecting God's image to those around us, and we're invited to play our part in God's kingdom story, as the Israelites did at this time. Let's pray. God, we see that you are a compassionate God merciful and loving in ways that we can't even comprehend. We just scratch the surface of what it means to be your image bearers today. Help us to walk away not 
more confused about what this text says, but to see that the value you have for people is the value that you want us to hold on to and to live. Give us good and right ways to respond to this text. Help us to understand what you would want for us today in our age. We see that you are a loving God who provided your son, Jesus, for us. Born and lived a sinless life, died on a cross that we might have a way forward into a relationship with you. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. To give us that way to you. That we might not need to live as the Israelites did, but to follow Jesus, Lord. Help us to do that. Help us to do that this week. And forgive us for the ways that we won't, as we know you will. We pray this in Christ's name.